All right, this is the Inexact Sciences, and basically we're here to talk about games, especially communication games, but you know, whatever games we can stuff into here, I'd be happy with. We're Expression games? Expression games, as Irving Goffman would love to talk about. We're inspired here by Strategic Interaction by Irving Goffman, and I'm inspired, though, you know, we'll see if Suspended comes to agree with me, by Adamirism underscore, who are all talking about strategy games. Oh, and uh, I should not forget at all shelling strategic interaction, you know, strategy of conflict, all that. Sorry, not strategic interaction, strategy of conflict. Strategic interaction is Goffman. We're all going to mix things up and uh, suspended will get annoyed at me. It's good. Yeah, strategy of conflict, 1960. Uh, 1969 uh, is the, the Irving Goffman. Uh, he publishes two essays together in a book called Strategic Interaction. The essays are called expression games and strategic interaction. I think they're more or less talking about the same thing. Um, I guess there are some subtle differences. Um, Maybe other things to throw in here. I mean, all this stuff is super adjacent to signaling theory. Um, And I mean, honestly, a lot of the terms that Goffman uses, like communication versus expression is, is an almost exact analog of, you know, signaling theories, signals versus cues distinction. So there's definitely a lot of anticipation and a lot of uh, other fields that talk about similar things here we can get into. I think the maybe final player that that's worth bringing up is Carl Friston, because he has been working on scripts and theory of mind stuff with respect to his predictive processing theory. And that could maybe end up with a mathematical or cognitive formalization of all these ideas that started getting talked about really, I think, in the 1960s. So. Yeah, so I agree with all of that to my knowledge. Um, as you'll notice, this, oh, by the way, I, I'm Crispy Chicken and Suspended Reason, howdy. Uh, and basically, uh, Suspended knows a lot more about the literature. I'm I'm constantly trying to keep up with him and failing. Um, so I, I agree with all of that to the best of my knowledge. But I'm sure we'll get into the finer details. I have a bunch of notes about things I'd like to talk about. But if you want to start, I'll, I'll give you that opportunity. I'm giving you uh, first go. Um, you know, I don't know what your notes are, so it's hard for me to kind of coordinate and model the best future between us. But uh, my plan, you know, insofar as I had a plan for a starting point, we could talk a little bit about um, just what strategic interaction is, what it means to like model futures and, um, and what even a strategy game is to begin with. Um, But take it away. I think that's a good place to start. And then I'm going to immediately, once you finish with that button with some critique about how all these descriptions tend to be too Machiavellian. So let's go. Cool. So uh, games of strategy, um, you know, shelling, and I think most people would pretty much agree with this. This isn't an especially controversial definition, but a game of strategy to shelling is a game in which um, each player's uh, best move is fundamentally predicated on the other player's best move. Essentially, uh, there's this kind of interdependent decision-making, um, an interdependent set of outcomes in which uh, they're both in conflict and in coordination, both players in this game, at the same time. And so this is kind of where you start getting into like the recursive theory of mind stuff that I think people start to notice or, or recognize um, just in everyday stuff. So uh, the classic example here is like Princess Bride. Um, there's the poison cup situation, right? Um, and they're kind of doing like this this nth level, like, well, you want me to do X, so but I know that you'll know that that I want to do X, and therefore I should do Y. You see this in games like Rock Paper Scissors, also, you know. Basically, uh, in op- in contrast with like a game of skill. Um, you know, if uh, in a weightlifting contest or a, a running contest, you know, in track and field, there's not really strategy. You don't have to actually model what your opponents are doing. Um, as long as you run as fast as you can um, or you just, you know, lift as, as heavy as you can, it uh, doesn't really matter so much. Um, so, and then in... Uh, the other kind of category of game, which is game of skill, or sorry, game of uh, chance, that's just something like rolling the dice, right? And again, it doesn't really matter what your opponent does in these situations. Um, but once it starts mattering, once your opponent's moves form the context or the environment in which your moves are effective or ineffective, that's when a game becomes a strategy game. 
Uh, Crispy's telling me that I'm coming in a little heavy on the mic, so I apologize if I'm clipping out there or overcompressed. Uh, I have yet to invest in a proper mic. I, I think it's pretty good now. Right. So I, thanks for the intro, and I assume that's more or less the end of it. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I could I could give a quick second about why this Do boils down to... So I think this basically boils down to mutual anticipation. Um, it's all about forecasting the opponent's future moves. So it, this really comes down to trying to understand your opponent's intent, your opponent's desires, what they're up to. And so basically we use like all these kind of metonymic cues in the environment. You know, we observe small small things that people do or small ways that people present themselves wittingly or unwittingly. And then we try and inferentially or abductively determine these kind of larger algorithms that they're running, such as desire and intent and competence. Um, and, and this really forms, I think, the basis of the game. People are up to people try and cloak what their in, true intent is or their true motives. They try and present a false one or stay illegible. Um, I think that's basic, basically the gist there. I love it. And I totally agree about this, uh, you know, mutually predicting futures uh, thing. And I guess two things that I'll say there. One, just to add on, I think a lot of the structure of cooperation we see in society, but also in, you know, like uh, like an anthill or any kind of animal scenario where you have a lot of interacting parts is that people don't just predict and agents don't just predict. They learn to act in a way that is predictable if it's going to be useful to the people they're cooperating with. And they don't want to be predictable to the people that they're not cooperating with or to the agents that they're not cooperating with, like a predator. Um, but actually, you know, there is an evolutionary advantage a lot of the time to being predictable in certain ways, for sure. Um, because without predictability, that there's no cooperation, really. Um, the totally. other thing that I'll, say, that I'll say here is basically, I think this gets misconstrued a lot as essentially, oh... I'm, you know, thinking in my head and predicting. And I think everybody, if, if you ask them, knows that we're doing a lot of, you know, you might call it unconscious prediction. I think unconscious and subconscious have gotten to be fraught terms. But all I'm going to say is, you know, not directly obvious to myself, not, not obvious for my direct reflection, prediction. And that actually happens, in my view, to be where most of the magic happens. Um, and, and I think that this has this view that we're doing it consciously has tended to make things seem very Machiavellian. So it tends to make us believe that like, oh, you know, if I am part of, um, you know, uh, X enterprise and we're uh, competing with Y enterprise, and then I'm going to predict what they're going to do and I'm going to try to screw them over. And a lot of the times it's more like, oh, I'm actually just going to make connections with people who might end up screwing over Y enterprise because it never hurts me. And so I never get a negative feedback loop. And that is a kind of prediction, implicitly, even if I'm not making a prediction. I think it's kind of an obvious point, but this is something that actually bothers me a lot about, and I'm sure this will come up in lots of conversations, about like a lot of rationalist writing, that it kind of tends to be like, oh, I'm making this absolute prediction. And there is an acknowledgement that that can be implicit, but usually in the description, it becomes so explicit, it becomes very hard to track how people would actually act this way. And I think this is something where we need to be very careful about thinking about what makes people actually form a prediction implicitly. And often it's actually not clear until you go and study the phenomena in depth, like concretely with examples. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's all well taken. I think there are two other reasons that I think um, a first impression that this is very Machiavellian um, is wrong, um, or if not wrong per se, uh, very partial. So one is that um, just as often as anything, um, these these moves are defensive, right? Um, just as much of risk assessment um, and trying to, to optimize your environment um, where other players and their decisions are actively part of the environment, that's as much defensive as it is offensive. Um, and then second, um, even in purely coordinative games, you're going to see the exact same thing. So Schelling has this concept, tacit bargaining. Um, and there's kind of all these all these games that Schelling goes through. Um, the, the concept of a Schelling point or a focal point is basically this idea of like, how do people who are trying to coordinate in some way, but can't explicitly talk it out and hash out some agreement, 
how do they actually come to some equilibria in which in which um, they accomplish their shared goals? And I think kind of the classic example he uses is two people get airdropped, you know, um, they parachute into enemy territory and it was an emergency. So they have no uh, they have no plan in advance about where to meet up and they might be scattered miles across from each other. They have no idea where the other person landed, but they're trying to meet up somehow. And obviously similar things happen, you know, if you get separated from your friend at a shopping mall, right? And so the idea is that if they maybe both have maps or they both can kind of see the area they're in, they'll find places of mutual prominence. They'll say, okay, where do I think that the other person will go? And where do I think that he thinks I will go? And if there's an especially prominent area in the, or location in the area, let's say an especially tall church steeple or a town square um, or just the exit to the shopping mall, the place that you parked your car, these become focal points because you can, if both people are engaged in this attempt to model each other, they can actually somehow settle on and bottom out recursively on these focal points. And I think that's super important and not really at all Machiavellian in the sense that people might be cynical about. Agreed. And let me just inject one thing there, which I actually haven't read this study, so maybe it's, you know, actually not well done. But there is a study about this in New York City, asking people in New York City where they would meet up if there was an apocalypse and suddenly there were no cell phones and whatever. And what does everybody say? Have you seen this, by the way? Schelling actually talks about this. It might have been an earlier study. Maybe they've done a more recent one. But it's usually, I think it's the Empire State Building, right? The top of the Empire State Building or Times Squares. Yeah. That, that So those are two. And then the third one, I think, is actually the most prominent one, but I'm not sure. And I, like I said, I actually haven't read the study. I read a secondary source a while ago, is Grand Central Station. Right, and so there just right. are these things in people's minds that, that are completely that way. But yeah, but please keep going. I just want to note that there really is experimental evidence this is the case. No, I mean, I, 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 I think that's basically right. I mean, we don't have to, I think, get super into the particulars on focal points because, you know, I think... I think it's a, a subset of, of really the larger strategic interaction phenomenon. There's just so much ground to cover. But yeah, I mean, Schelling, I think, has some kind of fun, creative ways of demonstrating this that uh, are good enough for me um, and maybe are interesting from an, an exact science perspective of thinking like, you know, we don't need a full-blown hypothesis lab study um, scientific method set up for every question. That's appropriate for a lot of questions, uh, but plenty of things are not rigorized to the stage or we don't even have enough preliminary evidence that would justify like a serious investment of money and time in, in such a study and and Schelling basically just you know pulls friends or, or or colleagues or students or whoever in with some really informal questionnaires just asking stuff like uh you know you have to pick the same number as everybody else and you'll win a dollar if uh if you pick the right number and there'll be like four numbers, you know, seven, three, 12, a hundred, um, 517. And everyone of course picks like a hundred, maybe people pick three or the first one, but, but he kind of demonstrates, I think again and again, these questionnaires that people are pretty good about understanding that there are these prominences, um, in the local environment that can be exploited. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, to add one more thing there, I, I hear you have something more to say. But before we move on, I want to say a few things. One is that this is going to come up again and again in the inexact sciences. And I think you, you said it so well that we want to figure out what needs, you know, a full-blown, double-blind, whatever study. And a lot of the times, A, that's not possible, or B, it's, it's the wrong idea because you want to be able to falsify a ridiculous hypothesis in advance by saying, well, I'm not 100% sure this is falsified, but I have a lot of evidence that says if it was the case, things should really look different. And I think one thing that people get hung up a lot on is like, well, how, you know, intercultural is this phenomena? How, like, whatever. And I think that is an important question, and it's not always relevant, and it's not always going to be solved by a study. If you go into an experimental study in New York, you're kind of intercultural, but New York as a, as a place has a certain kind of culture. And so a lot of these studies can't even, you know, falsify that point. Um, and the the other kind of interesting thing there is a lot of the times what you care about is, well, at least within your local group, does this at least happen? And it isn't, it can be an existence proof without having to, you know, have full, you know, uh, intersubjective thing over humanity, intersubjective robustness. So I think that's a kind of point that, that will come up again and again in the exact sciences. And I like the way you said it. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, it seems like I was just reading um, a collection of philosophical essays called Wittgenstein and Plato um, that talks about, you know, Wittgenstein's feelings and, and work compared to Plato. And, um, you know, I guess Wittgenstein talked a lot about, I haven't, I haven't read the primary source, but it, it seems that he talked a lot about how philosophers want to be scientists, um, that there is this kind of desire, this pull, there's this attraction towards science. And I don't know if it's necessarily the objectivity um, and this feeling that, like, you can rest firmly on your beliefs um, and be confident in them. Um, or if it's more the kind of social capital that comes with it or the funding. But there do seem to be all these polls, sometimes people call it scientism, that lead people to adopt um, the appearance or false rigor of science in circumstances where it's not actually appropriate. Um, and it seems like that's a lot of what's caused problems in this inexact science domain. Um, Agreed. I'll flip a... I want to... Flip back really quick because I think this will the the stuff about about focal points. I think maybe the most interesting thing to me about focal points, and I, I haven't quite thoroughly processed it, but Schelling keeps stressing that it's not just the pure math of the game theory in the game that matters when you have this tacit bargaining situation. It's these kinds of like surface, incidental, non-load-bearing um, details of the environment that somehow become actually load-bearing in this very strange way. Um, so, for example, like the reputation of Grand Central or the kind of metaphors that we use in this space will guide people to um, solutions. And one of the biggest things that he talks about in terms of like salient um, environmental details that can lead people to to focal points and finding equilibria is history um, and having essentially historical precedent. And so if there are historical precedents for kinds of deals or the way that people strike a bargain, it's very easy to just invoke that and say, look, we're just going to go back to this. We've used it before. It's fine. It's fair enough. And you don't have to like renegotiate the entire situation. Um, and uh, I think this, you know, this might be a discussion for another podcast, but the idea that that I've been playing with in proximity to this is that uh, the solution to a problem is always indexical to that problem. Um, that is definitional to what a solution and a problem are. But when you start thinking about games um, and these kinds of changing social games, um, the history that is behind, the history of moves that is behind um, the present at any given moment really forms um, in a strong and serious and salient way that environment. And so you get this kind of situation, um, kind of like uh, there's that quote, right? There's there's this stuff about the hoodies in Silicon Valley. You know, at one point, um, wearing a hoodie into a Silicon Valley interview was one kind of signal. And now that signal has totally changed. And, and what that really is is about precedent and, and in the history of prior moves changing the meaning of current moves. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I'm really glad you brought that up because it brings up a point about mutual modeling that I think is under-discussed, which is that, listen, if I'm going to play chess, it dip if I really want to do the best and I'm not infinitely clever, what I'm going to do is figure out how the person I'm playing usually plays. And even if I don't know, even if it's the first time I've met them, I'll think, okay, where were they trained? What kind of games have they played? What kind of books have they had access to about chess? And this determines not the legal rules of chess, but the rules by which I'm going to play because I actually don't know the goodness of different chess states that well because I'm not a very good chess player. But I can heuristically determine them better if I know the kinds of heuristics that you know my opponent is working with. And I think that's one of the big ways in which history matters, which is there are legal rules, you know, like what is actually allowed. I don't mean like legal in like the, the state sense. I just mean allowed rules in a game, possible things. But I but there's also this notion of, well, if my if my opponent or if my other cooperators are gonna tend towards something, then that's the space in which I should give the most density in my thought. I should consider that space the most because that's where I'm likely to end up one way or another, because I'm not the only player in this game. Yeah, totally. And and this kind of also, I think, ties into, I mean, uh, 
like market stuff, um, stock investing, um, kind of classically is, is this kind of, you know, people will call it an anti-inductive domain because, um, any insights as soon as they become kind of commonly known, get priced in. And so, uh, yeah, with all these games, the history kind of forms this, this, yeah, there's a ledger that, that affects the present. Um, there's something else I wanted to say in there, but unfortunately it slipped my mind. So, um, it's interesting. Uh, you know, you have a, a post on, uh, fail storage, um, about fake frames. I I'm going to give you a rhyming, uh, difference, which is what about fake games? Because a lot of people bring up this idea of a fake game, a game that people kind of know they're playing but that either you know people are saying that, that the people playing it aren't authentically playing it or that the game doesn't have real outcomes or real effects or that the real effects like shouldn't be real because they're only kind of being larped into existence right like this is a very common term on the internet today and kind of my view about this idea of fake games is that it's basically propaganda for certain games being real and for certain games being not it's a part of a metagame that decides what kind of games people are playing. But I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the idea of a fake game. Can you give me two or three examples of fake games? Sure. Um, so a lot of people will look at an online controversy and say, oh, these are just people trying to be offended at each other. Um, they're, they're not really offended. They're, this is a fake game. Mm -hmm. um, what's another fake game? You know, I don't... This isn't quite fair, but I think it gets across the idea that there's a lot of um, idea of money is fake in the water lately about this idea that, well, mm. we could all just decide, you know, that debt, you know, this debt is uh, no longer in existence. We could just kind of rearrange the entire money structure system because it's not real. And so I think, you know, the yeah. idea of capitalism or currency being a fake game. And then another thing that's definitely there is like the idea of status, especially cultural status, having read certain books, having a certain kind of education and knowing certain handles. A lot of people are like, that's a fake game. It doesn't change what you actually know about the world, which is actually something I agree with. I mean, it changes what you know, but only insofar as you know those things and what you take away from it is still individual. But because it doesn't like, it, it, there's this kind of explicit purporting of, oh, education changes the entire way you think. Um, that probably doesn't realize itself completely in these status games. Um, there's this idea that it's fake because it's kind of explicitly calling itself something it's not. But I would say that's still a real game. It's just a very deceptive one. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to grapple with these because they none of these really feel fake to me. Um, I agree. So, but I mean, the money stuff is interesting, right? Because uh, as a fellow fail storage um member snav uh would be fond of saying uh this is a real imaginary um concept i think <laughs> is it zizek or lacan or one of those guys who calls it this but i mean the way these work is through strategic interaction um and i think a lot of what we think of as like socially constructed um or fake is actually the product of coordination that props it up um because uh, because what is money other than um a, a, you know the reason that i think a dollar bill is valuable is because i have strong priors based on many 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 experiences in which that dollar will be accepted as legal tender at basically anywhere that i want to make a purchase um and because everybody has these same models in their head uh people can can pretty safely treat it as real um I mean, I mean, I think maybe there's something I, I, I haven't thought this through before, um, but maybe there's something here uh, that um, a, a real object um, really is, is any object that is the product of common knowledge or exists in common knowledge because it can therefore be coordinated around reliably. And that's what makes it real. I agree. And I think one of the places that I don't think this breaks anything you're saying, but I think it does tend to make it complicated. So for instance, there are medicines that don't really work, right? So for instance, there there are, you know, certain kinds of holistic medicines that I just fundamentally believe just yeah. don't work. They're not, they're not doing anything. Well, but these aren't, that's not a strategic game, right? Like the value of uh, a medicine is an interaction between the medicine and your body. 
and there's no actual strategy happening there, right? It's like a one-way street. I mean, maybe the the one way that this kind of works is the placebo effect in which there almost is something strategic because there's this kind of like belief making itself actual. But uh, I think it goes deeper than that think, though. Okay. Because so a lot of, it's, it's true about the body, but you know, a lot of people are in the things because of their local community, because they're invested in remaining friends with certain people. Um, and I would go as far to say that I think this is totally true about a lot of like medical conventional wisdom about stuff. So like look online, right? Like, or like look at Twitter this week. Um, you know, uh, Eigen Robot and Celentelia, right? Have a, have a baby. And a bunch of people have been talking about, well, is it safe to have, to sleep with your baby, you know, with you in, in the bed? And in reality, there isn't that much evidence that it's dangerous, there are examples of things going wrong. A lot of them have to do, as some people pointed out, with someone being obese or someone having a sleep issue. But there's this medical conventional wisdom of, oh, no, 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 that's very dangerous. Don't do that. And a part of this is, okay, what's actually going to happen? A part of this is, how much do I need to deceive myself that my doctor is right in order to keep taking advice from them? And a lot of this is how you talk to other parents about the things that you're doing and whether you'll be accepted by them. So I think it's true what you're saying about the little physical interaction, but I think it goes deeper. Yeah, it's true. It's embedded in this whole social matrix. So I think one big thing there is this, like, and I, I don't think there's a good answer to this, but I think it, it becomes more questionable than a lot of these um, kind of more idealized circumstances that are described in both strategy of conflict and, and strategic interaction um, present that you have to ask where a belief comes from. And uh, often you don't know because of, you know, the classic, you know, driver's uh, drive to say, well, I better deceive myself about where this comes from because it'll make everything easier for me. And I don't even think that's conscious, but I think it is a result that you can kind of narrativize that way. And I think that makes using introspection for these kinds of things hard, which I also kind of it doesn't make it impossible, but also makes it much more difficult to carry out these thought experiments perfectly well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is, you know, worth a little bit of a, a note in terms of, you know, people in this space are interested in Trevor's work and it does really tie into the strategic interaction stuff as kind of just a natural extension of it. Um, I mean, Goffman's frame, we've talked a little bit about, about shelling, um, we haven't talked too much about, you know, Goffman's expression games, but more or less um, the, the basics here are that um, it's, it's the same situation as strategy. I mean, in, in a face work situation or in interpersonal situations, um, basically, if, if your own ability to act and the efficacy of your actions um, are predicated on uh, the environment. And if that environment is, is partially or largely since that we're a very social species and, and our environment is largely social these days, you know, then, then it's largely about getting other people to behave in a way that, um, will make your own behavior efficacious to bring about your goals. And so this idea that, um, I think is pretty common in signaling theory these days that, um, that communication is manipulation. That's just flat out what it is. If you're communicating intentionally, it's because you want to somehow change your environment um, in a way that is more amenable to you. You have the situation where as Goffman asks, like, well, if we know that everybody is communicating to uh, manipulate others, then why? And we also know that there's nothing binding about words. Um, you, I can easily make up a lie. There's nothing... Uh, uh, then, then why would a self-respecting game player um, take any words at face value? Because um, there's this 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 optics problem of of people performing PR. Um, remind me where? Oh, the Trevor stuff, right? Anyways, if you're trying to play these games of 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 you know of of deceiving others, um, it very quickly becomes obvious that. Um, there would be some kind of evolutionary arms race um, for the ability to detect deception, um, for the ability to tell when people are sincere, and that correspondingly, um, we would try and get better and better at, at deceiving um, and being insincere, and that this could lead to actually some kind of split where the unconscious mind um, or some equivalent uh, of it 
has an agenda that the conscious mind is not fully aware of, which, you know, is just another wrinkle, I think, that makes introspecting on the causes and origins of, of feelings, behaviors, actions very, very difficult. And uh, maybe one of the reasons that I'm skeptical of certain, you know, scenes on Twitter that um, think they can find a lot of truth through essentially narrative inner introspection. Totally agree. And actually, so this is what I was thinking about right before this um, recording. I think in some sense, Goffman gives us really nice vocabulary to describe what this means. And to me, it's basically the fact that operational codes, one's orientation to a game, and normative constraints, one's own imposed restrictions about how one should play that has to do with a lot of kind of background stuff like culture and religion are melding into each other. Because I think there is this way, and this is kind of what I was beginning to hint at with, you know, a lot of people act in such a way that that cooperation and prediction will be possible, in which the constraints we self-impose basically declare who we're able to cooperate with meaningfully and we don't have to directly reject anyone. But by doing this, we lose some level of flexibility because most people can't change their normative constraints that quickly. They can change them you know, on the level of weeks and even days sometimes, but most people can't just say, oh, I'm in this new environment. I'm going to completely change all the ways I think about things and my value systems, even performatively. I think that's very difficult for people. Um, and so I think this melding of operational codes and normative constraints has made for a game that in many ways looks a lot more like evolution, where there aren't obviously discrete parties because the parties meld into each other as different kind of normative constraints allow people to cooperate or not in a given environment. That's super interesting. Just to, um, you know, give give the context here on on some of these terms. Um, you know, party, uh, Goffman basically calls a party, um, anything that has a unitary interest to promote. So it might be a corporation, a nation state, it might just be an individual self-interest. And then basically there are these players who work actively and voluntarily on behalf of parties or on behalf of coalitions, um, which are multiple parties. And then finally, I think the, the, the fourth kind of relevant term is a pawn who is a player who essentially um, is working on behalf of or is in some way in the crossfire of, of this conflict and is being manipulated, but is not doing so uh, voluntarily. Um, anyways, you, you use the word party and player there, so I wanted to lay out some definitions. Mm. One, one thing I want to add to that, by the way, that I think Goffman, uh, I haven't, I actually haven't read all of Goffman, so you know, maybe I'm full of crap, but I think that uh, that is worth kind of having a word for is the idea of what I would call an enterprise, which is I think there are certain kind of a kind of coalition, a kind of party, which is actually not coordinated explicitly in any way It's coordinated by a mutual interest that doesn't need to be explicitly communicated. So there are plenty of countries that on the international stage basically coordinate without having to explicitly coordinate because they have certain mutual interests, for instance, in the price of oil that just allow them to coordinate. And some, there is explicit, there is explicit coordination there, but there's also a hell of a lot of implicit coordination. And when one identifies one of these interests or directions or styles, I think, you know, you can identify, there are often enterprises that are identifiable of, oh, this, you know, group of people, this group of countries or enterprises or, or sorry, of, or businesses or, um, uh, or companies or whatever will kind of coordinate to create this balance or coordinate to keep something rising or something like that and that's that's kind of a, a it's a kind of emergent phenomena that i think wasn't a very popular idea as much in goffman's era but in the you know 21st century has become clearly very popular and also the idea of emergent um organization is just very clearly happening more and more with the internet hmm. can you can you give an example of the modern internet because i'm just i don't know too well how um, oh sure you know so nato how- and and the oil countries sync up their prices oh oh yeah. yeah i mean so so that's that's a great example actually because like the major thing right is that you know countries that produce oil want to have someone to sell to and so they tend to make diplomatic choices that endear themselves to whoever's buying a lot of oil like the us or china 
And like, if they're put in a hard place, they're going to usually opt for the person who they think isn't going to cut them off if they opt for that person like 10 years down the line. And often there's no, you know, there's no explicit diplomacy that has to happen. You just literally see these countries doing these things. I'm going to purposely not point any fingers because otherwise it, it gets extremely <laughs> controversial very quickly. But there are almost anybody with any view will have this, will have one example in their mind of, of, of countries like this. And on the internet, there's a lot of obvious things, which is this is how communities are created on the internet, usually through decentralized stuff. So there's no, it's no longer that, mm-hmm. you know, I go and create a forum for the thing that I care about, right? Which we did, but that's because we have a certain goal of producing stuff. But, you know, the, the post-rationalists did not emerge from explicit coordination, mm-hmm. right? What we call post-rationalism today, at least, which a lot of people argue whether it exists or not, whatever, but it exists enough that people are arguing about it, which to me means there's something there. And that was created by certain people choosing to keep talking to each other in a certain way and often without any notion of name, which is why often the name is rejected. But that's actually how most communities are created online these days. And I think that's how a lot of coalitions around certain ideas. So for instance, this idea of cancellation, which I know a lot of people still believe doesn't exist. I, I have trouble believing that because of how quickly like social change is happening in certain directions. But when someone is canceled, what does that mean? Usually there's no committee. There's a bunch of people who you assume have enough in common that they can basically be spiked onto a certain thing if you put that at the forefront of their mind because mm-hmm. you assume they they all have, you know, uh, basically the similar enough operational codes and normative constraints that you're going to alight something in their mind if you phrase something this way, if you show them certain evidence. Yeah. You'd think that there would be something about this in anarchist theory, right? I mean... I bet. Yeah. I, I, I wish I, I knew what it was. Theory, but... but it's it's on mm-hmm. my list, but it's always, you know, there's there's ten things, but I, I there has to be. Right, yeah. Um yeah, I don't I um I mean unfortunately I don't have a ton to say. I mean, this all seems real to me. I'm curious though. I mean it seemed like earlier um you felt like um styles of play maybe came into effect here. And I know you've made comments um uh, previously on other podcasts and elsewhere about how um, styles of of acting and behaving and communicating and and uh, you know the way words are used um, have a big effect on um, kind of identification of allegiances. I don't know if this all ties in or I'm conflating two things. No, I, I think it absolutely does. I think the way we use words is currently the most effective way of signaling identity. Because most other methods, first of all, most of us don't have physical exposure to each other right now because obviously we're in the middle of a global pandemic where most people are locked down in their houses and even the ones who aren't, you know, are mostly talking to the ones who aren't, which isn't the vast majority of the population. Um, I think the other thing is that using words like in a specific way to some third party in order to demonstrate it to some secondary party is a very costly signal. Because if you're going to use it, you, you can no longer really talk to people who are going to misunderstand your intentions with those words, because it'll be the, the, this third party you're trying to communicate with is going to be like, what are you talking about? And so it basically locks you in to a certain space of communities and people who are willing to talk this way. And that's a very costly signal. And it, but it, in addition to being a costly signal, it's a directly coordinated one. Because once you're boxed into this space, everybody here is boxed into this space because they're all communicating this way about something. So for instance, right, um, there might be some, like, so I think people's relations to masks, right? Whether they're required, encouraged, um, whether, you know, we should say, you know, like, who gives a shit? You don't have, you can't tell me to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. Um, Then I think, like, that's just something where if you have a different attitude, you have to really steer clear from it or you just have to just be you have to be in that community that's going to capture that certain um vibe that you're giving mm-hmm. off and that just creates space for coordination around other things that have nothing to do with masks and that's why we see this kind of intense bundling not just around singular issues but that one issue becomes you know agreement on a number of issues because that's who everyone is talking to the same people and tries to find consensus in order to have social behavior totally i think i mean this might transition into what what could be maybe our last section here because I know we're sneaking up on an hour, and yeah, we don't want to keep this too long for people. And, Agreed. But I mean, essentially, 
I, I think that's something that we've both been interested lately, um, and this kind of relates to this idea that solutions are indexical to problems, and that this is definitional to what a solution is. Um, it's this kind of idea of what it means for a certain move or a certain marker of a move um, in these games to ossify um, and to become totally recognized in common knowledge and the kind of like fashion um, cycles that these things go through where there are early adopters and it's kind of illegible, but maybe there's like some inherent connection um, between the thing and the signal that lets people understand it or people in the know will kind of pick up, but then it starts to become conventionally and widely known to proxy for something. And that totally changes the game um, because of course these games are, you know, anti-inductive and they're strategic, which means all knowledge um, that players have um, that gets publicized gets built into the game as part of the game. Um, and, and players in play actually get more advanced um, and more complex based on, on that prior knowledge, which is, you know, what Amir's recent thread is, you know, he has this quote, um, how the people playing the game describe the rules is not the actual rules because it's disadvantaged to discuss meta strategy when the game is still on and the game is always on. And uh, there's that great, um, well, I wouldn't call it great. There was an interesting Oliver Trolley piece on um, the game Among Us, which I didn't know anything about until reading the piece. Um, but he's, he's talking about, um, apparently this game Among Us is much kind of like a classic game of like werewolf or mafia, where there are a couple, you know, you know, bad people in, in the group. And the whole circle is trying to coordinate to find out which ones are the defectors, which are the spies or the werewolves or the mafia. And, but the mafia can slowly take people out. And there's this, this kind of people are, I think he calls it scum hunting um, where you're trying to root out who the bad people are. And he, he says, um, quote, it is easy, however, to confuse symptom and disease. It's easy to think that signs and symbols developed to tell the good guys from the interlopers are in fact constitutive of the difference between the good guys and the interlopers. And a bit later, he says, quote, it becomes a political responsibility for people on the right side to avoid acting in the ways that have come to be identified with the imposters. This, I think, is one way of cashing out what is called signaling or sometimes virtue signaling online. And to me, this is right. This is all about um, how a certain move um, becomes common knowledge and that public knowledge totally changes the game and the status of this move and its efficacy because suddenly you either have people who can easily fake um, the the kind of symbolic association and the tribal affiliation by just paying lip service. Whereas before, you know, I mean, something like, I think a great example, fashion to me is so anti-inductive and, and such a cool, I think people, when people are doing informal systems of monitoring and evaluating each other, there is this anti-inductive quality where all knowledge in the uh, in the common ground immediately gets snapped up and um, and integrated into the game, and it's specifically it's like formal and institutional modes of evaluation and assessment that aren't this flexible and fast, and so they're competing against players who uh, have evolved and are able to play this quickly um, and this adaptively, but they themselves are are more rigid and ossified. So you you get these problems like the the hoodie and Silicon Valley problem. Um, and to me, like a great example of like anti-inductive fashion stuff is um, like the door policy at Berghain. You just, I mean, may, maybe people who are really in the know feel like they can game it. But um, the, the idea basically is it's this club in Berlin, um, one of the more famous clubs in the world that has a notoriously hard door policy and people are always trying to game it. And there are all these guides online like, well, if you wear these colors and you look this way and you do blah, 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 you'll have a stronger chance of getting in. And that's probably true to some extent. But as soon as any one kind of style starts getting free ridden by, by quote unquote fakers, by people um, who are doing it, specifically trying to pay lip service to the symbols in order to accomplish some end, that the, the door, uh, you know, the bouncers will integrate that into their model. And so it's, it's still notoriously hard to get into Berghain because to some extent, in order to fake it, in order to bullshit, you have to know so much about the local scene and be so on the cutting edge of things that... Uh, that 
you can be one step ahead of the bouncer, more or less. Um, uh, maybe the the example itself isn't perfect. I actually haven't worked the Bergheim uh, door, and I uh, haven't read or thought about this stuff for a couple of years since I got interested in it. But uh, as a as a thought experiment, I think a lot of stuff works this way. I totally agree, and it is a subject really close to my heart. I think one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately on this, and I I tend to call this the meta game, and I think I think Amir calls it that too at some point, um, and. The, the idea being that, like, there is a game that you're playing, but there's a game that creates that game, and you're really mostly playing the metagame. But in order to make actual progress in the metagame, you have to make progress in the game that's currently there. But the game changes, um, and the metagame are the rules under which it changes. And I think one question is, how flexible is the metagame really? Like, can it, 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 I don't think it can create every possible kind of game, right? So I don't think arbitrary things can become fashion for beer kind, right? It has to be within a certain range of possibilities of, like, things that, you know, won't kill people and things like that. I mean, maybe even though there are things that are dangerous, but if it kills everybody, you're screwed. Um, so I think one big question is how much does knowing the rules or tendencies or correlations or dynamics of the metagame help you and what are and and what does it mean to know these dynamics and i think there are cases of people who who really know this i think i see this a lot you know for instance in academia that there are professors and labs that are much better at basically adjusting to what the publication has game becomes in a given year um and there you can you can call them flexible but i think there's there are types of flexible um and you know some of these labs in many ways aren't going to be good at if the game changes to a certain direction that requires, I don't know, um, you know, a lot of pre-knowledge about some subject or to really dig in on something and, you know, not cash out too quickly because a lot of labs that are more flexible, um, like, don't have essentially as long of an attention span on the level of years. So I think one of the big questions is, I mean, probably it's more than just, you know, one metagame. Probably you can stack up, you know, there, there, there are kind of a stack of rules and, and games. But I think a big question in my mind is, how much does knowing the rules of change actually allow you to game changes? And part of that has to do with predictability. But obviously, a lot of things aren't predictable, not even because you don't know the rules, but because you don't have enough information that even if you know the rules, you can predict what's going on. Like, that's how weather works, right? We know a lot about atmospheric properties, but you just need so much information in order to predict how the weather is going to be in two months that it's not really possible. Um, and I, I don't know how how possible or impossible or chaotic these systems are in various human interactions and how quickly these things change. And that's I don't have any immediate thing there, but A, I'd be curious to hear what you think, and, and B, this seems like fertile ground for the future. Do you think um do you think it's fair to to phrase this question as um how indexical are games and solutions such that understanding like high level dynamics and metagames won't actually tell you much of value about next steps in a game or is am I misunderstanding? No, I think that's right. I just think that there are specific dynamics to indexicality that are that are even more specific. For instance, you know, game change is essentially smooth over time. You know, the game five seconds from now looks very, very similar to the game now and only slowly changes. Um, yeah. And so there, there are certain properties to this indexicality, but I totally agree. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, even if we think of a conversation as a game, um, which and I that do. could also be, you know, future, yeah, future, future discussion. Um, but I do want to increasingly think about how um, Wittgenstein's portrait of language games um, really fits into this stuff and what, what you can learn about uh, language through the kind of strategic interaction frame. Um, but but yeah, I mean, in a conversation, obviously, that kind of relevance is, is slowly, um, I don't know, it would be interesting to try and mathematically model um, exactly how it changes. Um, but I think we should wrap things up. Do you have any uh, final thoughts you want to share? No, I don't. Um, well, maybe the last thing I'll say is that um, the first and stuff, so 
I think one big, big problem that that really plagues strategic interaction stuff and theory of mind, actually, it's sometimes I think called um, level K cognitive theory, um, which is this idea that like, if I'm trying to think what you're trying to think, I'm trying to think you're, you know, and, and so on um, in this recursive theory of mind situation, how do you bottom out? Obviously it becomes um, computationally intractable. Um, and I think there've been various solutions to this. Some people um, will try and just cap and say, oh, we think that the brain can only do three levels computationally or it gets too complex. So when we do all our models, we're just gonna cap it there. Um, but Friston, Carl Friston, um, has an interesting different approach that I think is in accord with maybe some of the Goffman ideas, which is that if people can coordinate around a script um, and they have rules where they know how to enact, and there are essentially these kinds of um, legible, predictable patterns that people know from history and precedent um, can, can play out a certain way that they can coordinate around these and avoid this kind of recursive problem. Um, and, uh, you know, this is areas that, uh, that I certainly don't know well enough to try and, you know, teach and synopsize here. But I think that's part of what's next for me um, and maybe what's next for strategic interaction as a field is um, figuring out, um, yeah, the role of scripts and traditions and, um, and roles in, in navigating this, this impossible recursive problem. Absolutely. The, the the place of roles is very deeply important to me, and I totally agree. And I think, you know, I have this entire theory that it's the role you're playing that determines your action rather than your immediate desires. Your desires are extruded through your roles. Um, now, as a final thing, how do you feel about us both introducing ourselves again and then just saying something wacky that has to do with the conversation? Because I'm kind of down, but I need, to, I need you to have me on it, too. If if you want to do it, I will uh, can I will attempt to follow your lead, but you'll have to model it first. That sounds good. Um, uh, well, I'm crispy chicken, and remember, if you play a dumb enough game, then you can decide the shelling points. <laughs> uh, I am suspended reason, and uh, remember, all communication is manipulation, but some manipulation is mutually advantageous. <laughs>